Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. We are uh, doing another uh, walking the dog edition. Uh, it is uh, Sunday evening and I'm out taking a stroll with the dog to set this one up. Um, today, we are going to look at some material we've looked at previously on the podcast uh, when we did um, material in little group of I think three or four episodes where we talked about the law and Jesus and I walked through material in that uh, set of episodes that talked through how Jesus handled um, First Testament uh, commands and law the way that those laws and commands work how they operate and uh, some of the function Uh, today what I want to do is consider uh, in a variety of ways how Jesus, especially in um, his teaching, probably primarily in the Sermon on the Mount, and how some of the segments and snippets of the rest of the New Testament seem to look at the law, um, what's going on with it, uh, talk through some understandings of what's happening with the law as we cross over into the New Testament, um, and and what shift takes place in um and some of that understanding. So, uh, first thing on this episode, as we start this conversation about the law, is that we've we've got to acknowledge that a lot of the time, for readers of the New Testament who are heavily saturated in the Apostle Paul, especially in the letters of Romans and Galatians, there is a tendency to be opposed to the law. Um, Paul acknowledges for us in Romans that the law is a good thing. Uh, But what Paul is adamant about is that none of us can be justified by works of the law. None none of us can be justified by works of the law because that's not the intention of the law. Uh, The law is not designed to justify us. And this is part of Paul's point in the book of Romans in his big argument. Uh, Laws don't exist to justify. Laws exist to say, hey, you broke this command and now there's a punishment for it. I use this example with my students, uh, primarily because they're teenage drivers, and it's really, really easy to highlight this. I, I, I tell them, okay, so don't sell yourself out here, but um, how many of you have ever driven faster than the speed limit? And then I say, now, sometimes if you get caught, uh, and in particular by certain police officers, you're going to get a ticket, and you get enough of those, you're going to end up in court at the risk of you losing your driver's license because uh, you've gone faster than the speed limit. None of you get a check from the state in which we live or your local police department saying, hey, thanks, we really appreciate the fact that you didn't drive faster than the speed limit. That doesn't happen. That's not the way that the law works. The law is not designed to reward keeping the commands. The law is designed to punish breaking the command, right? So when we talk about the law, Paul says to us, look, the law isn't there to reward us when we do something good. The law is there to punish us when we do something that violates it. This is kind of the function of law codes and legal systems. These things are off limits. Don't do these things. Don't do these things. And when you, or if you, do these things that we have said are off limits, then 
there's some punishments. And depending on the thing you did, there's some pretty severe punishments that go with it. And so we have to acknowledge that Paul says the law is a good thing. In some sense, it's a good tutor, teacher about the conduct, character of God, uh, God's holiness and his righteousness and what he expects of his people. It's a way in which uh, God's people can demonstrate that they are in fact his people, that they live in covenant relationship with him, and that they care about being the kind of people that he wants them to be in order to bring the rest of the world into that covenant relationship with him. Now, all of that said, we still land ourselves in a place where Paul's attitude towards the law as a thing that justifies seems to be something that sticks and colors the rest of our perception. Because remember, Paul says that we're not justified by works of the law because we're justified by faith like Abraham. And this is good, but what that means is that a lot of Christians today have taken a negative look on the law itself. The law is somehow a bad thing, and we forget that the law is a good thing that established a way of life for the people of God in covenant relationship with him in order to live a distinct life from the people around them, set apart from the people around them, sacred in that context, and bring the rest of the world into covenant relationship with God so that they too could live where God was living with people. Now, what about the law and the way the New Testament sort of handles it? Well, first, Paul says it's a good thing. It is a good thing to have the law. The law in and of itself is not a bad thing. Using the law as a means of justification is not a good thing. And in fact, it's an impossible thing. None of us will be justified by works of the law. The law is not intended to do that. Second, none of us actually keep the law. And this is Paul's point. None of us. None of us. Regardless of who you are, this is Romans, right? This is Galatians. None of us will keep the law. We all fall short and therefore need God's grace. So the law does not justify. That's, that's layer number one. However, the law is not a bad thing. The law is a good thing. The law teaches us God's character. It shows us what is good and right. And in fact, the Hebrew word for law is Torah, and it means instruction, teaching, law, command. And in that sense, it's command or law. But it's also a teaching. It's something that we are supposed to read and study and think on, meditate on, prayerfully consider, and come to a space where then we can follow as best as is possible in order to do the kinds of things that God says are characteristic of people who belong to him in covenant relationship. It's part of the stipulations of being God's people, just like there are stipulations that come with following Jesus Christ. Now, okay, here we go. First, the law doesn't justify us. Second, the law is a good thing. Third, Jesus says that all of the law and the prophets are summed up in the commands to love God and love neighbor. And here's where things get interesting for us, especially when we consider the Sermon on the Mount 
And when we consider passages where Jesus is challenging Jewish conventions around elements of the law. So Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus takes moral commands, what we call prescriptive law, things like the command to not commit adultery and the command to not murder. And he, he doesn't let us off the hook and make them easier because, oh, you just love your neighbor. No, no, he, he intensifies those commands. And so loving our neighbor looks like not only not having an affair or not murdering someone, it also looks like the internal attitudes, the dispositions of the heart and the mind that lead us to handle things like lust and anger in particular ways. Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not murder. And I tell you, if you're angry with your brother in this particular way, and he describes it for us, then you've done the same thing in your heart. And so Jesus intensifies the old code by adding a layer of the intentions, the internal dispositions of the heart to the outward facing action and command. I tell my students, in a lot of ways, the Old Testament's really, really easy. Don't do the outward facing action. Jesus intensifies that outward facing action and he says the attitudes of the heart the dispositions that you have, the inclinations that you have, and the way that you entertain the thought processes and patterns when you're angry with that person or when you're thinking about somebody with lustful intentions or something like that. Those things, Jesus says, are the same thing as the physical action. Now, for most of us, hopefully all of us, the outward facing action of not murdering somebody is relatively easy to keep. But the internal dispositions of the heart and the mind, our attitudes and intentions and the way that we entertain certain thoughts or patterns of thought when faced with lust or anger, those are a lot harder to navigate. Those challenge us at a different level. So Jesus isn't sort of down on the law. Jesus is about the law rightly applied. Now, for Jesus in the New Testament, <clears throat> the, the foundation is what's already been laid in the first book. You have heard it said this. And now I tell you, and there's an intensification of it. So the baseline for what Jesus is doing in the moral commands that he offers us in the Sermon on the Mount, and those two are just examples of how he would probably treat the rest of those commands, uh, the basis is the commandment that's already been given. That's step one. The next step, as you step into the kingdom of God, as uh, inaugurated with Jesus Christ, and as you follow Jesus, the Messiah, is that we go beyond just the outward facing behavior. And this is actually really indicative of Jesus and his treatment of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He calls them hypocrites all the time. Why? Because they have an outward facing behavior, but the internal dispositions and the attitudes and the intentions of the heart seem to be their challenge or their problem. In other words, those things that are internal aren't quite sorted properly, but they've got a really good handle on managing the outward facing behavior. And Jesus says managing the outward facing behavior is a great starting point, but the law is not about just managing the outward facing behavior. Being God's people is about more than that. 
It's about a transformation of the internal attitudes and dispositions. It's about a transformation of the person that handles anger or lust or power and authority and responsibility in particular ways. And so the basis of the morality and the ethics that Jesus gives us in the gospels is the 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 starting point of that the basis for what Jesus is going to build on that is the command and the law from the first testament he's not vacating it he's building on it so listen it's still not okay to have an affair or to murder but what Jesus has done is said okay that's our baseline but now as we participate in the kingdom of god and we are people of new covenant restored humanity through the redemption that jesus brings in his crucifixion and his resurrection the shift is now to the internal attitudes dispositions intentions of actions and behavior and so now it's more than just about the outward facing behavior now i would argue with you that the old testament commands weren't just about the outward facing behavior they addressed the outward facing behavior but they were always intended to run deeper than that and jesus is helping us see that as he exposits it as he unpacks it for us in the sermon on the mount now those are what we call prescriptive commands these these moral rights and wrongs there's another layer of commands though that jesus deals with and we talk about them in terms of descriptive commands descriptive commands are more about ceremonial purity they're about ritual purity they're about piety these are practices that would have been um appropriate in uh the israelite uh society in their day and age but aren't necessarily eternally moral problems. So, for example, uh God gives commands around um cleanliness. So we we can talk ceremonial or ritual purity here and it, it, people who have an emission of bodily fluid whether it's blood, um if a man's had an emission of semen, if a woman is on her uh period and there's an emission of bodily fluid that person is unclean and they have to present themselves to the priest and there's a whole list of things that the priest needs to evaluate and that person is unclean until that flow of bodily fluid has come to an end and they've gone through a series of sort of ritual purifications ceremonial purity law okay uh there's nothing necessarily immoral about those situations that has made somebody unclean now doing something immoral would also make you ceremonially unclean but that's not what we're talking about so in this particular instance as we think about the ritual codes around ceremonial and as we process through what's going on with these codes one of the things that we are paying attention to is the reality that these codes uh aren't necessarily an indication that somebody has done something morally wrong. Okay? So, the emission of bodily fluid. 
nobody's necessarily done anything morally wrong, but they are now ceremonially unclean. If somebody's done something morally morally wrong, that comes with a ceremonial uncleanness, and that has to be rectified as well. But just because you're ceremonially unclean doesn't mean you you violated a moral principle. Okay, so the ceremonial pieces, the piety pieces. Okay, those codes and commands get to the idea of what it looked like to be an Israelite who was set apart and sacred for God's service in the context and culture of the day. This is where issues like、uh, dietary laws and washing. So, in Mark chapter seven,、um, Jesus is challenged on the basis of whether or not he's washed his hands. According to a Jewish custom, before they sit down to a meal, and Jesus says, "It's not what you take in that makes you unclean. It's what you produce. It's what comes out of you that makes you unclean." And so, we're shifting where the ceremonial law has been、uh, focused on what you come into contact with, like the discharge of bodily fluid, right, or a dead body,、um, even a family member in the case of like a funeral or something like that. Those things made you unclean. Jesus says in Mark chapter seven. As he's challenged by the religious leaders of his day, that it's not the things in the life around us that we come into contact with that makes us unclean or、uh, impure before the Lord. It's the things that come out of our hearts. And so again, we find Jesus boiling the law back down to something that's going on in the heart, and then working it out from there. That's layer number one. And so what Jesus does is he says, "Look, these these things you come in contact with. Okay, fine. You come into contact with." They don't make you impure or unclean. It's the stuff that's going on in the heart, and what you produce, what comes out of you, the fruit. Those are the things that make you unclean. And so now Jesus has shifted it, where cleanliness was originally an idea that surrounded、uh, perhaps piety. We'll talk about that in a second with a different code, but also、uh, around the ceremony and the ritual. And being able to be in the space where the ceremonial、uh, or the ritual was taking place,、uh, those things、uh, are a little bit different because Jesus is shifting what's happening with the ceremony and with the ritual and with the space. Jesus now is the dwelling place of God with humanity because He is God in the flesh, and so. Um, instead of Jesus coming into contact with impure things and being made impure, people come into contact with Jesus and they are made clean or pure, and then they are supposed to produce things in their life that demonstrates that purity. And this is kind of the focus that Jesus seems to have taken up: be in contact with me, and as you're in contact with me, things in your life change, and on the basis of that change, you then produce. What is good or clean, and what is not good or clean? Well, again, Jesus has shifted the sort of external focus of the First Testament law to an internal reality, and it's not to say that the focus of the ceremonial codes and the purity laws of the First Testament weren't about what was going on internally. But it wasn't spelled out quite the same way that Jesus seems to be doing it. Okay.、Um, along with the ceremonial or the ritual cleanliness 
there are things in the law about the kind of people Israel is supposed to be among their neighbors. And this is where we get to piety codes. So this is where things like tattoos show up, right? And certain Christians will read those things and say, okay, so we're not supposed to be like the culture around us. Uh, tattoos seem to be off limits. And so we're going to stay away from tattoos. Um, and then there are others who come to that and say, okay, tattoos seem to be a culturally appropriated issue related to worship. And there seem to be places in the scripture where God writes on or marks on, and it seems to be an awful lot like the tattooing process. And so in this new covenant where the dietary laws have changed and we don't have to eat kosher and we don't have to follow the Jewish uh, ritual washings practices, then tattoos fall into that same kind of category. They are about, or those laws against tattoos in the First Testament are about the kind of presence we have in our community and the ways in which we live differently. And what we're keyed in on, and that difference about clean and unclean, uh, in the New Testament with Jesus isn't about whether or not you have tattoos necessarily, but it is about the things that you produce in your life. Well, this gets to that, that distinction between prescriptive law, what is morally off limits all the time, and descriptive law, what is about uh, good piety, healthy religious devotion, and a kind of purity in that religious devotion. Jesus in the New Testament, uh, especially when we read passages like Mark 7, seems to be more concerned with the content of the heart, the internal attitudes and dispositions of the heart, and what those internal attitudes then produce on an outward-facing scale. I'm not in here uh, to get into the argument about tattoos, yay or nay. What, I, what I'm trying to say is, when we follow the, the outline that Jesus provides us, moral commands from the Old Testament, uh, find a home with Jesus as he talks about what we are doing internally before we are dealing with the outward-facing action. How do we handle our anger before we speak? Do we bring it under control? Or do we speak and act because there's malice? How do we handle desire? Does it become something that's lustful and outside proper boundaries? Or do we bring that desire in check and have control over it and exercise that desire in proper covenant context with spouse? So the, these, these, these elements are, are for Jesus more about what's going on in an internal space and how that internal space then works itself out in our lives. And that, that works both for the descriptive laws and the prescriptive laws. And Jesus boils it up, boils it down to, if you love God and if you love people, you will fulfill the law and the demands of it. Now, that idea of love for God and love for neighbor, we need to be clear about. 
What Jesus is not saying is warm, fuzzy feelings toward God and warm, fuzzy feelings toward our neighbors. It will automatically lead us to a place where we completely uphold every element of the law. No, uh, because love um, in the New Testament uh, follows this agape as the, the, the highest order of love that we should be aiming at as Christians because it's the kind of love that God needs. And agape is, is a love that is always oriented toward what is in another's best interest. And so if I love God, I am always concerned with God's best interest and working toward God's best interest in the world around me. Likewise, if I love my neighbor, I'm always interested in my neighbor's best interest and working toward my neighbor's best interest in the world around me and in the world of my neighbor, by the way. If I'm interested in my neighbor's best interest, God tells me what that best interest is. I should live and conduct myself in such a way as to lead the people around me toward the reality of Jesus Christ and all that he is and has done in my life. And I should be caring and kind and I should serve them well. I should speak the truth, but not with condemnation. I should speak the truth with clarity, with a firm stance that it is true, but also with grace with humility and with a sensitivity. So loving God and loving neighbor isn't about just the warm, fuzzy feeling. Loving God and loving neighbor is about what is in God's best interest and what is in our neighbor's best interest. Keeping the law then for Jesus and all of the commands that are in it begins and ends with a consideration. Am I about to do or participate in something that is in God's best interest and my neighbor's best interest. That best interest will always be righteous, just, and equitable. That's how that works. This is part of what the prophets are getting at in the First Testament. So as we consider the law and what Jesus is doing with it in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is intensifying the law by, by making it intentionally, internally focused in addition to the stipulation that's already present in the law about the outward-facing behaviors that the law restricts or commends. So, if I am to keep the law in the first order of business is what Paul talks about as he talks about being transformed. In Romans and in Galatians, the work of the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 8. Being recreated into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. And as that happens, those internal realities, like lust, anger, bitterness, malice, need to be uh, worked out of me. They need to go away. They need to, they need to be removed. and character that looks like Jesus in the way that he handles conflict, anger, the way that he handles conversations around truth with grace, the way that he deals with issues of desire or lust. Those should be more characteristic of me. And then as a result, my outward facing action supports the best interest of God and neighbor. And so internally, 
I seek out the best interest of God and neighbor. And then externally, I act out what is in best interest of God and neighbor. When we look at the law of the First Testament, we see a law code designed to get us to that end. But it's written to address the issues, or at least some of the issues. It's perhaps not a, uh, uh, a, a complete set. It's enough to get us to the principles that we need. So we should be able to understand, right, that if, if adultery is off limits, then I need to have my desire restrained and under control. Jesus makes it more explicit and intensifies it for us. But the First Testament law tells us outright, adultery, off limits. Murder, off limits. Being dishonorable to your parents, off limits. What Jesus is doing with it is, is bringing a, a two-fold approach that allows us to follow a basic principle to uphold the right standards of the law without needing every single command for every single situation. And that principle is this. Love God, seeking out God's best interest in every situation and circumstance. And love neighbor, seeking out the best interest of your neighbor. The best interest of your neighbor is always in line with the best interest of God in any given circumstance. Doing what is righteous, just, and equitable. What is in line with truth and grace. And if we do that, Jesus says, we will fulfill the law. Paul wants us to see the law as a good thing. Because it's something that shows us the character of God, introduces us to a way of thinking about our outward-facing behavior that should bring us to the place where Jesus is at when he intensifies those commands for us in the Sermon on the Mount. Unfortunately, we've oversimplified what Paul is doing. And instead of acknowledging the fact that we cannot be justified before God, through our keeping of the law, because we can't keep it, and because that's not what a law is designed to do. We've boiled down Jesus' good grace as a good thing, and the law as a bad thing. And Paul tells us explicitly, the law is a good thing. We need the law. Sin is a bad thing. Sin corrupts the good intentions of the codes of law. I didn't necessarily understand what it was to covet or lust, and then I read the law and it became clear and sin took an opportunity to corrupt the good thing I knew and cause me to desire it like a piece of forbidden fruit. But the law in and of itself is a good thing because it outlines for us the ways in which God says this is good and right. This is healthy. This is honoring to me and honoring to your neighbor. And so walk in this way. I hope this is somewhat helpful as we consider the law and how Jesus and Paul, at least, are, are dealing with it. I know this episode has been a little bit long. Um, my apologies for that, but I think sometimes this can be a bit of a tricky conversation to navigate. So hopefully this was helpful. 
we will talk again soon. Until next time on the podcast. Thank you.